Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Bible study. It's good to see all of you. We're going to take a few moments and pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll get going. Father, thanks for your love and for your presence. Thank you, God, for this opportunity, and thank you, God, for your word in our lives. I pray that uh, you would teach us tonight. We ask for your Holy Spirit to uh, reveal and your Holy Spirit to apply your word into our hearts, into our lives tonight, and we pray, God, that we would have really an open ear and an open heart to receive all that you want to speak to us and all that you want to pour out. I just ask you, God, that we'd be ready to receive. I pray for revelation. I pray for an expectation in our hearts and our minds for more tonight, for you, for life, for uh, reality, God, for a change of mind, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, if you need a Bible, <clears throat> grab one off the table or uh, wherever you need, feel free. Mark chapter 12, as you turn in there, just another reminder tonight uh, about a feature we have for Bible study. Uh, it's at a website, www.speakpipe.com, that's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E.com, slash Monday Night Bible Study, and that's all one word. And there's a button there that you can uh, toggle and leave a message. If you want to ask a question, you have a comment about Bible study, anything that's going on, we'd love to hear from you. And we want to just let you know about that feature that we have and to encourage you to avail yourself of that. Mark chapter 12 and verse 12. Mark 12, 12. Somebody like to read that? All right, thanks for reading that. If you look back into verse 1 of Mark 12, you can read the whole story there of what he's talking about, or what the chief priests were talking about. Jesus had uh, shared a parable, and they immediately recognized that he was likely talking about them uh, after he, they heard the parable. And so because of that, they were angry, and they would have taken him and likely done really bad things to him right on the spot, thereby proving that they were indeed the subject of the parable, because that's what the parable was about. And so if you if you ever want to read the parable, I mean, it's a, it's a story about a man who owned a vineyard, and he planted a vineyard, and he dug a wine press in the vineyard, and he hired some people to work in the vineyard, and then he went away to a different country. And so after a certain amount of time, he sent a servant to go back there and to collect rent, which was customary when you're using someone else's property. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh, the idea was is that uh, the vineyard would sit there for four years before they would actually begin uh, producing fruit to sell. And so it would be common for uh, in that fourth year that there would be an offering made from the vineyard and that offering be made to the Lord or whoever, whomever, uh, likely some type of an offering to God as people somehow, but the grapes wouldn't be sold yet. And so the owner had sent back a servant to collect. It was rent. 
They, they weren't, he wasn't looking for money. It wasn't customary that they would collect money. He was looking for product. In other words, whatever the harvest was, whatever the fruit of the vineyard was, what he was looking for. And so as the parable went on, he, he went back to, they sent a servant back to collect and they wouldn't pay. And so there, there's a progression that t- takes place there where they beat up the first guy. The second guy, they hit him in the head. Uh, the, the authorized version says that they stoned him. They hit him in the head with rocks. But they hit him in the head, so that was the second guy. Then they treated the guy badly, the next guy that came along. And then eventually they killed the next guy. They beat up the next one. They killed the next one. And so anybody that he sent to them, they were either badly injuring or killing. And so finally, the owner of the vineyard said, okay, well, I've got a son. He's my only son. Surely they'll respect him. I'll send him to collect. So he sends his son, and they see it's his son, and they said, now here's the heir. If we kill him, then we can take control of the vineyard. And so they killed him and cast him out. So after that, the owner and, and Jesus in the parable describes what the owner was going to do. What do you think the owner was going to do after these people killed his only son? Yeah. So somebody's going to pay for that. Somebody is going to pay. And, and so the idea we get from the story is that he's going to respond, and, but it's delayed. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a little while. So so the, the people listening to that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people from the Sanhedrin that were listening to Jesus talk, they perceived, they understood he was talking about them. And so what I want you to understand from that is that this, par- this particular parable had some absolute connection to reality. And so there's an absolute connection to reality in this parable in a number of different levels in a number of different places within the parable. And I don't think you have to be a Bible scholar to start figuring out where it's connected to reality. And so we're going to look at some of that. But anybody remember, we were talking last week about, I used a word that maybe been new to some of you. Anybody remember what that word was? Deicide. Yeah. That was the word. And it means to kill your God. And and what what's this parable about? It's about deicide. It is about people looking to kill the owner of the vineyard, his son. That's what they were looking to do. And in thereby taking control of their own faith. In other words, the quote from the verses there was, everything will be ours. That's what they said. And if you've ever had the urge to take control of your own faith, or if that's some kind of a driving force in your life, listen up. Because this parable is for you. You see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the people of the Sanhedrin had taken control of their own faith. 
They had taken control of what it meant to be righteous. They had taken control of who decided who was righteous. They had taken control of the means by which someone could be deemed righteous. They had taken control of the forms of worship. They had taken control of the places of worship. They had taken control of the means of worship. What they said was law. And so they therefore had taken control of their faith. But the only way to really do that, truthfully, is to kill your God. That's the only way it works. And so this parable begins to introduce them to that idea. Not that it was going to stop them, not that it was going to change them, but at least the truth would be spoken over them. And maybe there would be some among them that would change. Maybe. By the grace of God. We know that at least one of the members of the Sanhedrin came to know Jesus in John chapter 3. We know that. A guy by the name of Nicodemus. That he came to Jesus. It was at night and it was undercover. But he did come to Jesus. And he did talk to him. And he did. He was some type of a secret follower of Jesus. He was. And there were others that we know that came to know Jesus. But sometimes you got to speak the truth. Sometimes you got to speak into a situation. Sometimes whatever needs to be said needs to be said. And this is one of those times where Jesus, speaking through a parable, speaks directly to this issue and speaks directly to these guys and they perceived and they knew that he was talking about them. They knew. And so I want you to think about what this story talks about. Who do you think the owner of the vineyard is? Come on, you know. It's God. Alright? That's the owner of this. So we're touching reality with this, with this story. And that's what we're, we're going to do. And so who are the people that he left in charge of the vineyard? Hey, his chosen people. He had chosen people to... to be his people and to live and to follow after what he had told them to do. And so there they were. They were working and doing what they were supposed to do, supposedly. They were in charge of the vineyard. And so he sends a servant to that vineyard. And who do you think the servants? And it says he sent a bunch of servants there. Who do you think they were? They were prophets, right? They were. There were all those people that he sent to them. And he sent those people to, to speak into their lives. He sent those people to bring them to account for who they were in their lives. That was their job. And that was a very spiritual way that, that God sent these people in. I mean, how were these people going to give account if no one held them to account? So in other words, they may have strayed and they may have gone off and done what they wanted to do and yet God was faithful to send people their way to say, okay, let's get back on track here. And to hold them accountable and call them to account. And we know sometimes when God sent a prophet or God sent some, one of his representatives to them, they listened to the representative, they repented, and they changed. What happened in other times though? What does the parable tell us? Sometimes they beat them. Sometimes they, they treated them terribly, treated them badly. Sometimes they hit them in the head. Stoned them to death. Sometimes they killed them. Now you think about the stories. I mean, Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. 
Because they didn't want to hear what he had to say. The prophets faced a certain amount of persecution. Even the big prophets faced a certain amount of persecution. You, you think about um, Elijah. Elijah's hiding in a cave. Why? Because the king didn't want to hear it. I mean, he was under threat of being killed if he was ever seen or caught. That's how he was living in his life. But that's the way the prophets were treated. Why? Because people didn't want to pay up. They didn't want to be held accountable. They didn't want anybody coming in and telling them they were wrong. And what they were doing wasn't what God wanted them to be doing. They didn't want to change what they were doing. They wanted to control their own faith. They wanted to control the way that they were going to live. There's something in us, human beings, that's strong in us, that we want that. And yet, when it comes right down to the to God and who He is and what He has for us, there is no greater freedom and no greater liberty than what He offers us. But we're going to do it His way and not our way. And that's a fact. When we start doing it our way, it leads to bondage, and it leads to the very thing we don't want to be in, and that is abject slavery. That's what it leads to, though. We just can't see it. It just happens. I don't know if you remember, like years and years ago, none of you are even old enough to remember this, but there was a book that came out that talked about how things change and how we're influenced slowly over time. And they introduced a principle in the book about uh, a frog. They used a frog in a pot of water. Anybody remember any of this? And if you turn the heat on, the frog doesn't even notice and it just it, because, I mean, as a, as a frog, their temperature can change. Their internal temperature can change what their environment is. But at the, at the last moment, you think about, well, they start boiling. They're dead. And so they're able to change, they're able to change, they're able to change, they're able to change, they're dead. And so the idea behind that was they're introducing a concept to us that, you know, we think we can hold on to something. We think we can control something. We think that we have everything in the palm of our hand. And yet, we, without even understanding, without even seeing, we're just falling into slavery in our lives. Which leads to death. And so without even knowing it, without even recognizing it, without even perceiving it happening in our life, we're putting ourselves in danger to the point they were on the verge of losing everything. But that's how we do it our way. God's way is different than our ways. And so he sends the prophets and he sends his representatives. He sends those who are going to preach the word. He sends those who are going to teach the word. Our way. And, and he describes it. This man sending these people to the vineyard, trying to hold these people accountable. They don't want to hear it. They don't want anything to do with it. And so finally he sends his son. He's like, my only son, my only son, I'm going to send him. And they'll surely respect him. Did they respect him? They didn't respect him. They killed him. And I want you to think about holding us accountable. And I, and I don't really speak on this on Sundays, and I, I don't talk about this a lot, but there's certain ways that God holds us accountable in our lives. And one of the ways, and we all we all like to hear about God's provision in our lives, right? I love God's provision. All right, I've been prophesied over, and one of the prophecies over me had to do with cars. That I'd always have cars. That I'd always have somebody giving me a car, doing this, whatever. If I was ever in need, there'd be a car. 
And that was specifically prophesied over me one night. There wasn't a room. There weren't, there weren't half as many people in the room. And I was just sitting on, in a campus meeting, and a guy just prophesied it over me. And from that day forward, it's been coming to pass without fail. Right? I love that. But let me tell you something. There's another side to all of this. Because part of his provision over us and part of how he, he pours out his blessing into our life is that we're also held accountable for our faith and what we really believe and our trust in him. And one of the ways that happens is through the tithe and the offering. And I'm not going to sit here and talk to you about you know this, that, or try to convince you of anything because whatever. But I will tell you this, and I really firmly believe this, is that the fruit of our labor... Alright, like they were producing grapes in the vineyard. The fruit of our labor means something. Otherwise, you wouldn't go to work every day, would you? It means something. You think of it, well, I'm going to pay my bills. Yeah? Yeah? But you know what you do first? What you do first is you give the owner his share. Or you're just like these people, just sitting there. Well, I, no, that's not my terms. Right. I understand that. It's not my terms. That, that's the truth. It's not supposed to be your terms. It's supposed to be his terms. You don't magically come to that decision in your life. Nobody does. It's part of his terms that he's laid down. He's like, I'll provide, I'll give, I'll bless, I'll, you know, all those things over our lives. But part of those terms is like, yeah, well, give the owner a share. It seems really simple to me. It's always been really simple to me. And, and I've had people argue with me about it. I've had people tell me why I'm wrong. I've had people explain to me in the Hebrew and the Greek why it doesn't make any sense. And I, you know, all the rest of this kind of stuff. But I know one thing is that the owner requires his share. Not because he needs it. Because I need to recognize it. And if that, you can't understand that, I don't know how to help you. I just don't. But if we're going to live in abundance, we're going to live in blessing, we're going to live under provision, there's going to be certain things that are going to be put in order in our hearts and in our lives. And this is one of those things. We're going to put it in order. And so, as, as we refuse to pay, I want you to see it as a lack of perspective. You don't think these guys in this parable had a lack of perspective? They're on somebody else's land. They're working their vineyards. I mean, they are the workers, but that's somebody else's vineyard. That's somebody else's vine. That's somebody else's grape. And they're on somebody else's land. And when they come and they say, hey, pay up, it's a lack of perspective to say no. Do you understand that? There's a distinct lack of perspective in that. It's like when people, they, they get a job and God's blessed them with a job and they find something wrong with it and they're going to make the biggest deal out of the dumbest thing. And they're making good money, they have good benefits and they're in a great place to work and they're going to mess it up because of some minor stupid thing they just can't let go in their heart or their mind. 
They sabotage one of the best things that ever happened to them because it's not exactly what they want. It's a lack of perspective. It's a lack of perspective. That's a lack of recognizing blessing. That's a lack of being thankful. That's a lack of understanding that who's in charge. It's a lack of understanding that what, what great stuff that God has laid before them. That they're willing to just throw it away like that. It's a lack of perspective. It's also a lack of perspective not to pay on the land that somebody else owns, on the vine that somebody else owns, on the grape that somebody else owns. Because something happens to us as we work something or something happens to us as we engage in some kind of activity where we believe somehow, some way, we're a lot more important than we really are. And this is one of those cases. I'll also say this too, greed, greed, greed is a symptom of a lack of faith and a lack of trust in our lives. Greed is a symptom of a lack of faith and a lack of trust in our lives. And I I can speak to this, I, I grew up in a circumstance where I didn't have stuff I needed growing up. I understand that. I grew up in a circumstance where I didn't have clothes I needed. I didn't have stuff that I needed to wear for school or, or whatever. And you know you know what happens to kids that don't have the right kind of clothes to wear to school? Anybody knows what happens to those kids? I get made fun of. I didn't get beat up too many times, but I got made fun of. But you get made fun of, and, and you get people laughing at you, and you get people, you know, you're not getting asked into the, the coolest of circles and stuff because, you know, you, you don't have the latest whatever it is on. And, and I've grown up like that, and I've grown up wearing clothes that I, I've outgrown, and I, I, I grew up you know, wearing flood pants and stuff to school because I didn't have anything else. And so as I got older and as I worked and I provided and I got stuff for myself, I would hoard clothes because I was never going to run out of clothes again. But you know what? That greed, that hoarding, you know what? That reflects in me. And I'm using me as an example so nobody feels like I'm singling you out. But it it represents a lack of faith and trust on my part. That God's going to provide for what I need. That's what that represents in me. It's like, well, I'm always going to have what I need because I'm going to provide for it. Well... That's not faith. That's not trust. And at some point in my life, I had to come to a place where, okay, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to have faith. And start throwing stuff out. Or giving it away or whatever it was I had to do. And so whatever that that place is in us, and I don't know what it is, I, I do know this, is that Greed produces poverty in a lot of ways. And I know, I know that guy got up on that movie Wall Street and said greed is good. Greed produces poverty in us. Right? Michael Douglas or whoever he was. Produces poverty in us. Because you, you get so much, you can make twice as much as what you make now and have nothing left over. And some of us can attest to that. You think about what you were making 10 years ago. All right, some of you. 
Then you think about what you're making now. And and for some of us, where does it all go? Somewhere. Go somewhere. It wasn't the answer to whatever was the problem then. <laughs> still not. <laughs> it's still not the answer. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, others, beaten up, killed, beaten up, killed. And, and it's kind of interesting that Jesus is the ultimate appeal, right? Was it, what, that, what was that guy's ultimate appeal to the, the vineyard workers? I'll send my only son. Wasn't that it? That was it? That's all he had left, right? He sent his servants. He sent the people he could send. They all, you know, whatever happened to him, happened to him. So his final appeal, his ultimate appeal was, okay, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And so Jesus, if we're carrying this on into reality, the story into reality, Jesus then becomes the ultimate appeal of God to us. That's who he is. If you look in Hebrews 13, 8. Hebrews 13, 8. Anybody want to read that? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, all right. As you look at who Jesus is, right, and, and what does that mean to you that he's the same? What does that mean? He is who he is. And so as the Father sent his only Son, he sent him as what? An appeal to us. So in the story, he sent his son as an appeal to the people that were working the vineyard. In the New Testament sense, how, how did they read that? It was the Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all those guys. It, it, they saw, well, he's saying that the Father has sent him to us. He's making an appeal to us. They didn't like it, but they recognized it. And so today, when, when Jesus comes... Into, into our midst, when we welcome Him, whether it's a time of worship or it's a time where we're gathered here like studying the Bible or it's a time of prayer, whatever it is, when Jesus comes into our midst, what's He doing there? Well, there's an appeal. It's the ultimate appeal of the Father to whomever. Whomever. That's His appeal toward relationship. That's His appeal toward coming into that place with Him of intimacy. That's His appeal. It continues to be His appeal. It was His appeal. It is His appeal. And it's going to be His appeal. That's why Jesus is central to everything that we do. There's no greater appeal than that. No greater understanding than that. In other words, we could be the slickest church on the face of the earth. Everything just works perfectly every single week. We could be drawing in the masses and we, we could be programming the best stuff all the time and have the best nursery and have the best children's program and, and have the best whatever it is we're going to have. But ultimately when it comes right down to it, the real appeal that God is sending forth has to be in the person of Jesus. Unless we're just building a social club. Jesus is it.
Let's go back to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Anybody? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what's the what's the issue at the beginning of those verses? What's the issues for what's the issue for the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the members of the Sanhedrin? What does that ver what's the big problem with that verse? Faith isn't built on Right, and, and the issue is the stone, think about this, the stone that the builders rejected. That means that a different stone was put in its place and the building was built without it. And so what that indicates to us is that there's a building that exists apart from what Jesus is talking about. There's a building that actually exists that were built by the build. It was built by the builders that can be looked upon, that can be seen, and that may have the correct form. It may look the, the, the correct way. It might have the right parts to it. The other parts of it may all be right. Who knows? Maybe they followed the plan. I don't know. Maybe that there was a, a blueprint of a building that they followed that blueprint. And so if you were to look at it, you'd say, all right, well, this is the building. Except for one thing. What's the key thing that's missing? The cornerstone. And here lies a problem for us is that we like forms and we like to look at things that are pretty and we like to see things. And if you can identify enough parts of it that are part of the original blueprint, you can say, well, this must be the place, right? It looks like it. It seems to be according to the plan and everything. But but how do you know if it's the real building or not? How do you know? What do you got to check? You got to check the cornerstone. What is it built upon? What's it founded on? How did it start? Like right there in the very beginning. Because it can look right. And it can, it can seem right. And all the rooms can be in the right place. And the windows are all in the right place. And the facades all look good. But the big issue becomes, what's the cornerstone? <clears throat> and so these builders that were listening to Jesus that day, they understood what he meant. They got it. And they understood that what he was calling into question is what they had built their faith on. What they had built their lives on. What they had really put their trust into and put their faith into. And what he was basically saying to them is, it looks right. It seems right. The facades are all right. It seems like this is the right place. Just not built on the right cornerstone. Not right. Not right. And what does that produce when you hear that? What does that produce in you if I was to tell you that? Because I am telling some of you that right now. I am telling some of you that right now that your faith and huge portions of your faith were built in the, on the wrong cornerstone. 
And it looked right, and it seems right. And if you look at it today, you can look back at it and say, wow, that's a beautiful building. Because it is. And that's the thing it's supposed to be. But what does that produce in us when we hear that? What is that? I got one word for it, and you may have a different word, but it produces crisis. It is a crisis for us of faith and a crisis to look back on and say, maybe I've been wrong. That produces crisis in us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both physically, mentally, and but after that, after that breaking point where I realized all I had was religion, and I didn't have that relationship that I needed. I mean, everything changed. It was pretty awesome after that. Right. But there seems to be there needs a moment. There has to be a moment somewhere along the way, because to continue on. Trying to do what you need to do in the facility that, that that's not built on the right cornerstone is not only fruitless, it's also really frustrating. It's just really frustrating. It's really empty and it's really frustrating. And part of the problem that we all have is that wherever we came from, there's still people there probably that we love and that we know. And so, in order for us to really move on from beyond that, there has to be a letting go, in a sense. And I'm saying, I'm not saying letting go in the sense I don't care, or letting go in the sense that I don't love you, or letting go in the sense of uh, I'm not concerned about you, I'm not praying for you, or anything like that. I'm talking about a letting go that it doesn't have to be right anymore. And I, I kind of reach that conclusion. It's not that I go around telling people, oh, you're wrong. I don't tell anybody that. I guarantee you more people have told me I'm wrong than I've told her wrong. I guarantee you that. People tell me I'm wrong all the time. But what I'm endeavoring and what I want in my life is I want to build on the cornerstone. See, I started over when I became a real, you know, when I became a Christian. I was brought up in a church but my mom had moved us away, and, and I'd just kind of not done anything for years. And so I had a reset somewhere in there where it wasn't really attached to anything. And, and so when it started over again for me, it was like, it was just, this is brand new. I don't know anything about this. Not really. And, and so just start building from square one. All right, good. But some of you didn't come out of things like that. You came out of some weirdness or you came out of some some holiness or you came out of some religious thing or you came out of some bright, shiny building of some kind and, and everybody loves each other and their teeth are sparkly and stuff. But, I mean, I, you came out of somewhere. And, and I mean, that's good, but but it, it, I guess there has to be a point in us somewhere where we can we can really start, I guess, from a square one with Jesus. We can't hold on to the old thing and, and try to, you know, work our way in that other building because it's just not built right. And that's what Jesus was saying to these guys. This, this isn't going to continue like this. And that was really the message of this too. Is like all these people that Jesus was talking to, he, they were saying, yeah, we don't really want anything to do with you. And then they didn't. They were going to kill him. 
<clears throat> they were seeking to kill him. They were seeking to, to, to shut him down and to shut him up. Because he was threatening them. He was bringing them to that place of crisis. And they didn't like it and they weren't going to live there. And so their decision was to just shut him down and to kill him. But what this did was open up a door for all of us. Every loser on the face of the earth that had previously been rejected and been living outside of the will of God and the blessing of God and the purposes of God for their life was all of a sudden invited in. Saying these builders, they built their thing. Alright, it's bright, it's shiny, it looks great. Nice facade, wrong cornerstone. So I'm going to call in a bunch of loser builders that have been rejected from the beginning of time, but this is your chance, losers. Come on over. Here's the cornerstone. At least get that right, and let's build something together. And so then a new building was started that was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Do you see it was a new building? He didn't spruce up the old building. He didn't just pop the cornerstone out of the old building and stick himself in there. Alright? That's not what happened. He started a new building with new builders. New builders. And then the apostles and the prophets, they laid a foundation, and then the bricks were laid, and a new building was started. We're part of that. Not that old building. The new building. See, literally, that's what he was talking about. But what I'm talking about in our spiritual lives, kind of the same thing. Because guess what happens with history? You ever hear this before? History does what? Yeah, over and over again. Why? Because people are the same. That's why. It's really simple why history repeats itself, because we're the same. So, history is repeating itself. Follow me. And so, buildings have been built over time that didn't have Jesus as a chief cornerstone and weren't built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's what happened. Is it going to blow up? <laughs> What's that? It's coming from somewhere over there. So, so the building, we are, Aphrodite, yeah. so we're built, so, so these buildings that were being built, however they were being built over time, were being built on something other than Jesus as the chief cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so, as they were being built, just like the original builders built whatever they built, these people are building whatever they built, and it's become whatever it is. And there's always people that are a part of that. And so every iteration of it that comes along, people are a part of it and whatever. All I can say is this, is that you, you, me, I, we're responsible... For looking at the cornerstone, we're responsible for looking at the foundation, and we're responsible for building on that, regardless of what anybody else is doing. And so, whether or not that building over there is built that way, or this one, or that one, or what, I don't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in this sense that we are responsible. I am responsible. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Here's the apostles and the prophets. Let's build our building. 
You're here now. I'm here now. Let's do it together. We're losers. We can do this. We have been chosen specifically for this task of building this building. Given the opportunity to do so. And so let's do that. Whatever that means. And if that means we're going to build here, or that means we're going to build in China, or we're going to build that building in Pakistan, or we're going to build that building in Northern Ireland, or we're going to build that building in West Africa, or we're going to build that building in Thailand, or wherever we're going to build that building, let's build it. Let's get together, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the apostles, the prophets, and let's build it. That's what we're responsible for. Because the bottom line, as far as the owner is concerned, is that he is going to respond. And he is responding. But in the parable, Jesus made it clear that the owner will respond. If not right away, he will. And why is that important? Well, the reason that's important, and, and this is and this is why I'm saying this, part of the response of the owner is us. See, those people that were there in the vineyard, they were pushed out. And guess who gets to go there now and build something? Us. It's us. So part of his response, and the reason it's important we understand he's, he's responding, and he's going to respond, and he's responding right now, is that that's how we got into this opportunity. That's our opportunity right there. It's part of the owner's response, part of the father's response to this. And without getting into any kind of, of retribution or anything else, it's, it's an open door opportunity for us. And a door that had been closed for thousands and thousands of years all of a sudden was open because of their response, because of what they had built that was severely lacking in perspective. And so now we have our opportunity. And part of his delay in responding is also an act of mercy. And, and I want you to think about this, and I want to say this clearly. God's mercy is long-suffering. And I know some of you don't believe that, but it really is. It's really long-suffering. Well, what does that mean? That means that we're screw-ups. And we keep messing up, and He keeps showing us mercy. That's what that means. And so it's long-suffering, and, and we, we, we think of Him as not being long-suffering, and yet He's revealed Himself over and over again as a God who is long-suffering. Even in the mean old Old Testament. You think about the number of years and generations that God was long-suffering with people in the Old Testament over and over and over again, generation after generation. Even with people, individuals in the Old Testament, how often they would mess up and He was just long-suffering, showing mercy to them over and over and over again, even in the mean Old Testament. He showed Himself and proved Himself to be a God of long-suffering mercy. And His mercy triumphs over wickedness. It does. However you want to define that. And so, Him waiting around, that's mercy. Because what does it give us an opportunity to do? As we're sitting here, right here, right now. What does it give, him, him showing us mercy, what does it give us an opportunity to do? What can we do? 
What can you do? You can change your mind, right? You can go a different direction. You can see things differently. You can gain a new perspective that makes more sense. You can beg God for a new perspective tonight. Say, God, I want to see things more the way you see them. I want to see things the way that, that makes some kind of sense in my life. Would you help me? You can change your ways. You can see things and do things differently than you were doing them before. you got that opportunity right now. Now you've been called into the, into the vineyard. Now you've been called into the, the building. Now you've been called into what God is doing. In reality, that door's been wide open for you. Even in the midst of that, you're being given an opportunity to mess up, learn from it, and change. And grow. And become. And mature. All those good things. So even in this story, you see that, 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 that mercy. You see that long suffering. And you see the opportunity that God gives to change our mind and change our perspective. Got another verse for you. John chapter 11 and verse 47. Kind of a weird verse, but I may have to have you read some verses around it. But John 11, 47. Okay, you can keep going. If we let them go on like this, everyone will believe in them, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Keep going. Then one of them, named uh, Caiaphas, who was high priest eight years, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Keep going. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest eight years, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. Bring them together and make them one. Alright, go back to verse 47. The first question he asked. In some versions, it's, it's a little clearer. They actually asked the question, What are we doing? They're asking that question. What are we doing? And and somehow, some way, it's like a moment of clarity or something, right? What are we doing? Here's Jesus. They're like arguing amongst themselves. Well, we want to we want to arrest this guy. We want to kill him. We want to stop him from what he's doing. But man, he's doing all these miracles, and people are getting healed, and all this great stuff's going on. What are we doing? Yeah, yeah, we got to protect the building. And our positions. That's what they, they finally came to that conclusion at least. We've got to protect our cheese and our building. Ultimately, that was the decision they made. Right. A lot of people die and get sent off into bodies when we do things against God. I mean, they have that history. They know their history. They're being given a, a clear example, and they know 
because you know they say, well, if we don't shut him up and put him to death, right? They, 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 it's like they lost their fear of God even after seeing the history of him <coughs> correcting that. Well, to be fair, and I, to be fair, after their last captivity, when they came back from Babylon, or however you want to say where they came from, there were certain reforms that took place within their faith. And then in the period of time between the Testaments with the Maccabees and the rebellion that took place during that time, there were other reforms that took place. And so, to be fair to them, they were able, over those 400 years or so, to be able to maintain themselves out of and keep themselves from idol worship, which is something they could never do as a nation before. All right, so they were able to do that based on the reforms. But, and this is just my opinion, take it or leave it, I believe that what they basically did was take their faith and they reformed it into such a thing as they could live with and still do what they wanted to do. And I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever. So, so the fear from the past was always about turning to idol worship. Right. And they said, well, we're not doing that anymore, so we're safe. Well, I don't know, they wouldn't say that, but I think the reforms that were made and the way that they proceeded forward allowed for them to live and do what they wanted to do. Which is where we started the study with deicide. Well, when it, but that's the way we are as people. When something threatens our power, threatens our security, threatens our finances, threatens our position, we can become very obtuse. That's why it's easier just to kill God than listen to Him. Okay? Because Jesus threatened all of those things. Absolutely. Temple was destroyed. Within 70 years of this, temple was completely destroyed. And they were, and their nation was wiped off the face of the earth. Not to return until the 1950s. Yeah. So about 1900 years. They were scattered. Right. Right, yeah, you're talking 70 years, 400 years in Egypt, nothing close to 1,900 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yep, absolutely. And so, what can we learn from that? <laughs> what we can learn from that is that is that we've been given an opportunity. And, that, and that's really the, the key to this whole parable is that the people who were being rejected, or who were rejecting him, I should say, were angry about it. But God was ushering in an invitation to the rest of us. And here's that invitation. 
to come on in. They could have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, that's the whole story, isn't it? Well, this is the whole this is the whole story, though. Here, it's, it's just a story of of God's attempt to redeem and their rejection of it. So it's that's the whole parable. It just made them angry. Yeah. So. And and I would suggest to us too. I mean, if if you if you get angry at, at every opportunity, like when you hear opportunities for change. And you hear opportunities for redemption, and you hear opportunities for God's grace in your life, or His mercy, or your forgiveness, and you get angry about that. You should be very careful of where your heart is. Okay, and I say that in as much love as I can because I don't want to see. I, I want to see. I want to see it come into the the good place that God has for you. You're like it's like you're fighting God's provision. You're fighting God's love. And I want to see you come into that and come into the the really nice place he has for you. I do. He's made every provision for you to do that. And I encourage you to, to step aside from the anger and the frustration and to step into what God has. Because there's a lot of love he wants to pour into your life. Alright, let's uh, take a few moments and pray. And uh, I encourage you to respond right where you're at. And, and by right where you're at, I mean where you're at spiritually. You respond. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity that's right before us, here and now. I thank you that you've called us into your vineyard. You've called us uh, into that place that you've made and that place that you've given us. I thank you for the opportunity that you've opened up. We're your people. We're your children. That we're we're priests and we're kings. And, And God, there's no way to thank you enough for that or describe the blessing there is in knowing you. And so tonight, I pray that in some very simple ways we can enter into more and more of an understanding of what that means. God, I ask you that we we check the cornerstone of where we're at. We check the cornerstone and we check the foundation of where we're at tonight. And I pray that we become part of that building process, whatever that would mean to us, whatever that would mean to our place in the kingdom, whatever that would mean to our place in your call and your purposes, whatever that would mean, God, to where you have us and where you want us to go. God, I ask that we find ourselves in the midst of your mercy and in the midst of your love, in the midst of a process of maturing and changing and growing. And I just ask you, Lord, tonight that that we would allow forms and things that don't matter just to fall off and be left behind. I pray for a a true simplicity 
I pray, God, for life. I pray, God, for more of you and more of your love. Thank you, God. I pray that we'd answer your call into your vineyard. We ask it in Jesus' name. So we by saying amen. 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 God bless you. Good to see everybody tonight. And we'll see you again.